0: just we'll just start by reading the actual passage it's only four verses so on in the pew bibles page 1028 um when when steve sort of allocated out the the texts to be done um thought four verses but actually spent a fair bit of yesterday pulling it back um so anyway we'll see if i've cut the right things or not so let's let's just read the text so starting at verse four John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of kings on earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay. Let's pray pray shouldn't we let's pray heavenly father we do thank you for your word we um, thank you for the blessings we get by reading it and looking into it and um yes pray help us to um understand this this passage and um yeah, go away a changed people amen god's kingdom will come it is in his hands we trust in him we don't trust in governments We don't trust in United Nations thank goodness. We don't trust in all of these things fine as they might be and as important as a role as they play believe me I've worked in it and they are important but as someone who has been in it if you are putting your faith in those things like I put my faith in the Lord you are making a mistake. They are earthly they are fallible and I'm so glad we have a bigger hope. Some of you will recognise those words. Scott Morrison preached those words at um, uh, Margaret Court's Church in Western Australia. He was criticised by a lot of the media on the ABC, and um, even even current PM Anthony Albanese weighed in, saying that he was astonished that a former PM would speak against the government in the UN, and that it was a problematic conspiracy. So whatever you thought of, of um, Scott Morrison's performance as a Christian conservative Prime Minister, um, his comments here, of course, are quite right. And we could easily spend quite a bit of time discussing um, governments and the UN and the world and that sort of thing. But um, I think you're all aware of what's going on. But, um, but this has been our situation since, since well, the fall, really. there is nothing new under the sun. And it was certainly the situation in the, towards the end of the first century when um, um, this, this letter, the Revelation of John, was penned. At that time, the church was facing various persecutions. Yet you, you had the imperial cult where everyone had to worship Caesar. Caesar as Lord. But there were also cultic practices and trade guilds which were uh, m- uh, more about worshipping some of the local gods and the local customs, and everyone was, was expected to participate in those still. So, so basically the people had to first give their allegiance to the state and second had to go along with whatever the current local thing was. And if you think about that, that's not too, too unfamiliar with what we face today. And that's one of the reasons that our betters were so upset at what Scott Morrison said. He dared to suggest that there was something bigger than the government and bigger than the UN. And that's something bigger, is something that we're answerable to. And in their minds, that's a very dangerous idea. That's why we have this letter. It, it came to John through an angel, but it's also from Jesus Christ and it's about Jesus Christ. It's to the local churches of the time and it's to the universal church. Um, and it's written to encourage us and to stay strong in times of persecution. Jesus told us several times that we would be persecuted just as he was persecuted. But as this letter continues to remind us, and as Steve reminded us last week, the Lamb wins. This 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 letter, this is a vision of Jesus Christ to carry you out into your daily life and especially in those situations where you are likely to cave into the pressures of the world or those situations where your witness to Christ has been marginalised. And so this is an important book to read and understand. Steve Lawson, he he calls Revelation the capstone of Scripture. And various people which um, talk about verse 3, which Steve talked about last week refer to verse three as a beatitude blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy blessed are those who hear and keep it and keep what is written for the time is near no other book has this assigned to it no other book in the bible has this assigned to it where we are blessed that's <laughs> the same word as in the in the beatitudes um, by by reading and hearing it now we get um, uh, blessing. From reading every book in the bible but revelation is unique in having the statement attached to it and but why as, as Stephen Lawson puts it it puts Christ before us in ways which he is at this moment at the right hand of God the father ready to burst upon the scene of human history at any moment and usher in his kingdom on earth So it's important we read read and try to understand this book, to hear it and to keep it, to obey and apply it to our lives, for the time is near. So starting in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace and peace to you from God, who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This is a typical first century greeting in in, in their letters. And... um, uh, we see this in other letters in the New, in the New Testament, um, but as Sinclair, Ferguson, as Sinclair Ferguson tells us, um, they turn the biblical authors turn an ordinary greeting into a marvellous expression of the gospel of Christ. So the seven churches. A lot of you will be aware of these maps. A lot of maps in the back of your Bibles will have will have the seven churches. Um, so these churches are in what we... Call today Turkey, which the Romans in their day called Asia. Um, And Sinclair Ferguson, again, he suggests there were probably more Christians in Turkey back then than there are now. And um, these these particular churches here, as I've mentioned earlier, were under great pressure. Now, John would have known of more than seven churches. Acts 20 mentions that there's a church at Troas. There was a church at Colossae, so the, the, the Colossians, and in Colossians 4, Paul mentions a church at Hierapolis. So there's at least 10 churches at that time that we know about in that region. So why does he address just the seven? It may be that he had a, a special relationship with those churches. But most likely, it's symbolic. John uses symbols and numbers and images in all sorts of, in all sorts of ways. And we'll see that as we move through the book. So the number seven is likely to be quite significant. Seven equals perfection or completeness. So while John does address seven specific churches, which we'll get into over the next few weeks as well, so it's these seven specific churches and their individual circumstances and the issues in the life of those churches, there is also a sense that this is the universal church. The number seven suggests that this is for every church, everywhere, and every age. And that's why, if you have a look back at uh, verse 1-3, that's a universal statement. It's not just addressed to the seven churches. That statement is addressed to every church. So he opens his letter with grace and peace, as um, do a lot of other New Testament letters. Now, grace... Grace is God's gracious favour granted freely from the abundance of his love. And peace, Oops, gone too far. Peace is a right relationship with God belonging to believers as a result of God's grace. It's the river of blessing, the shalom that flows from that and transforms life. Grace and peace is no, near, no mere polite opening formula. John wills that we will have what we most desperately need, God's undeserved favour and shalom, the comprehensive well-being and blessedness that comes with reconciliation with God. So where does this blessing come from? John gives us a Trinitarian benediction. This is the source of the grace and peace. So who was, who who is, who was, and who is to come? This is God, or more precisely, God the Father. He is the eternal and unchangeable God. This is likely an allusion to the "I am who I am" of Exodus three. Who is and who was? He's the constant, always reigning one, both now and from the beginning of the world. He's the eternal and unchangeable God. Who is to come? He is coming to judge the world, and will bring in his new creation. But judging the world isn't that something about what the sun does? Aren't we expecting the sun to do this? There's, there's a term. Um, just bear with me for half a sec. Um, Coherence. Coherence. Things that exist in a central relationship with each other, as innate components of the other, or to be more specific. Each of the persons of the Trinity shares or co-inheres in the divine nature with each other. So just as a couple of very quick examples, yet even if I do judge and my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the the Father who sent me. And believe believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Whatever one member of the Trinity does is also interrelated with the others. Anyway, back to the point. Um, after God the Father, we have the seven spirits who are before the throne. So who are these seven spirits? This might be a reference to um, angels or some sort of angelic being, Um, and maybe they're somehow related to or attached to the seven churches. But notice how grace and peace um, come from both him who was and is and is to come and from the seven spirits. This is a divine benediction. If you flick through the New Testament, wherever you see grace and peace, it always comes to us from God the Father and Jesus Christ, never from a person or from an angel. So that suggests that that these seven spirits are divine, that grace and peace, yeah, they're divine, equal with God. of the Holy Spirit Okay, I'm not being clear um, so why does John use this term the seven spirits it may be um, a reflection on, on Isaiah 2 so seven so and the spirit of the Lord shall one rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord so arguably there's seven attributes of the Holy Spirit um, and we've already discussed the number seven as referring to perfection or completeness. So the seven spirits before the throne is arguably an unusual way for us, at least, to refer to the Holy Spirit. When I was looking this up further, I kept coming across references to the menorah as a reference to the Holy Spirit. So you've got the um, the seven the seven candles on the on the on the lamp seven headed lampstand. Um, So just to flesh that out that's sort of clear um so if you you have a look at the layout of the the, the temple you've got the holy of holies and there's the mercy seat that's where god the father is out in the court of israel that's where the people are and that's where the sacrifices the blood sacrifices were done so that's where the atonement happened so arguably that's where the son was or the representative of the son And so in the holy place, that's where you have the menorah. So arguably um, the Holy Spirit. But we won't get too bogged down on that. Um, So yeah, the number seven, the argument is, refers to the complete and perfect Holy Spirit. So after talking about the Father and the Spirit, John moves to the Son. And from Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Um, Notice it starts off with the and again. So it's from the Father, the Spirit and the Son again, pushing out this idea that it's a divine benediction. John mentions Jesus last so he can break out into a doxology, into a song of sorts, um, in praise for what Christ has done for us. Matthew Henry says that Jesus is mentioned last as John intends to enlarge more on the person of Christ and what follows. Stephen Lawson points out that Revelation is mostly about a person. It is the making known, the supreme, sovereign glory of him who is coming, Jesus Christ. Here is Jesus unveiled for us, not as he was in the Gospels, but as he is now, seated at the right hand of the Father, possessor of all authority on heaven and earth. Here in the Revelation is not the meek Messiah, but the mighty maker of heaven and earth. Here is not the Galilean carpenter, but the great King of kings, Lord of lords. So he is the faithful witness. Um, He speaks and represents the truth. We can't know God apart from the truth, true knowledge of the living God. We can't be saved or worship God apart from the truth. Being a faithful witness means that Jesus doesn't compromise or adjust the truth truth is truth truth is reality it's, it's how things really are truth doesn't care about your feelings or if you're going to be offended you're either following the truth or you're following a lie god is the plumb line with truth all that is in alignment with god is is truth and all that is out out of alignment from the being the glory the mind the will and the character of god is a lie just as an aside, that's why the, the get, to get myself in trouble here. That's why the transgender movement is so insidious. You must accept this falsehood. You must accept this lie. If you don't, you can be ostracised. You can be fired for the job from your job, and you can even face consequences under the law. When it comes to truth, Jesus Christ is the greatest revelation of God. God to us. He is the faithful witness. He is the greatest revelation of truth to us. I am the way, the truth and the life. He's also the firstborn of the dead. He's the risen Lord of all who, who have or will be raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. Now firstborn, this is not about chronology. I'm the oldest child in my family so in a technical sense that makes me firstborn. Um, but my younger brother would argue that doesn't make me any better or greater than he is. He would say he's the better and greater one. Um, yeah, I find it funny because I know what my brothers like. But, um, but that's not what we're talking about here. Historically and chronologically, others were raised from the dead by, uh, before Jesus. And there's quite a few examples, such as, as Elisha raising the Shunammite woman or Jesus raising Lazarus. Jesus wasn't the first to be raised. Firstborn here means first in rank, in authority. It's to have all the rights assigned to a firstborn son, to be the rightful heir and receive all the inheritance of his father. It's about privilege and rule. King David was the youngest in his family, but he is called the firstborn. And as we started out in Psalm 89, and thanks, Dave, for reading all that, um and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. In its its original context, that's King David. Um, Of course, we've now gone to say, well, that's King Jesus. But he is the firstborn from the dead. So Jesus, he has conquered death. He frees us from death now and forevermore. He is the first begotten of firstborn from the dead, or the first parent and head of the resurrection, the only one who raised himself by his own power and who will, by the same power, raise up his people from their graves to everlasting honour. For he has begotten them again to live a lively hope by his resurrection from the dead. Death no longer rules. It's Christ that rules. And... He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Acts 4. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. Here the rules and the people plot against Jesus but they were only able to do so because God's hand and plan had predestined that to take place. Their rule is completely subservient to his rule. And so going back to a little bit to where we started, regardless of what the ABC or, or, or Anthony Albinese think about it, Jesus Christ is the King of kings and lords of Lord, Lord of lords. This is not that he's just more important than them and therefore they should submit to his rule, but their rule is subject to his rule. Um, Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. Behold a white horse. Caesar's rode a white horse, especially when returning victorious from a battle. But here the white horse and the one who sits on it is, is, is faithful and true. He's the faithful witness. And as the text itself says, he is the word of God. In righteousness he makes war. Now, one diadem makes a king sovereign, but in this passage, he has many diadems heaped one upon another. It's sovereignty upon sovereignty. We cannot understand or grasp how great his sovereignty, how great his rule is. Jesus is not just a king and a lord, he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. History is not a random, painful chaos. He decrees every step of it. History is his story. But back to verse 5. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. This king, he is the redeeming saviour. And he's done three things for us. Jesus loves us, and therefore by his blood he has freed us from our sins. Another coherence thing here. The father loved us enough to give his only son, but the son loved us enough to freely give his own blood. But Jesus loves us. The rulers and the culture may hate us, but Christ loves us. And if he's for us, who can be against us? And he loves us enough that he freed us from from his sins by his blood sin that's where I make myself lord to live life under my rule rather than under the rule of the lord of lord and king of kings and thus we became slaves to sin but we are no longer slaves to sin we are in effect no longer in satan's kingdom but we are christ's kingdom and he has freed us He has pardoned us by his blood that the, the, in greek the preposition here by denotes a price and that price is of course his own blood he suffered the penalty and paid the price for our desire to usurp the king from his rightful place but now we are his kingdom and priests 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 have direct access to God Um, we go back to the old testament and that's what priests did they they had the people were outside and the priests were the ones who had the access to God this is what Christ has done for us by freeing us from sin. He brought us to the throne of grace. We now have a personal relationship with God. We don't need a priest to represent us before God anymore. We are now priests ourselves. We are, as 1 Peter 2.9 tells us, a royal priesthood. Our purpose is to serve God, not this world, nor even ourselves. We are to serve God and serve God for the world. To his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This doxology is directed to the Son. Again, it's a divine doxology. It can only refer to God, but here Jesus is also distinct from the Father. It's addressed not to our God, but to his God, Jesus' God. This is relational language of, um, of the Son and the Father. And it is to Christ who is ascribed ascribed glory and dominion forever and ever. And amen, may it be so. This is the hope and desire of every member of his kingdom. Just, um, if we flick forward to, sorry, yeah, if we flick forward to 1 verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. All tribes and nations will wail on account of him, even so. So behold, pay attention. What's coming is important. Now, coming in the clouds. Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Daniel prophesies a day this Son of Man will receive his kingdom and all will worship him. Here and in other New Testament passages, Jesus is said to come with the clouds. This identifies Jesus as this awaited one, as this prophesied one. Um, China, America, Russia and even the Commonwealth, they will not stand, they will all pass away. But the King is coming and his eternal kingdom is coming and that will not pass away. Every eye will see him. The first coming was quite understated, really. When you think about it, he was a babe born in a manger. Um, but the second coming will be in the clouds. Everybody will see him. There'll be no missing it next time. And even those who pierced him, those who sought to actively kill Jesus, those who seek to deny the existence of Jesus, those who, anyway, those who those who mock him. Um, belittle, belittle, belittle Christ and his followers they will not mock him even they will see him um, by myself I have sworn from my mouth from my mouth has gone out into righteousness a word that shall not return to him to me every knee shall bow every tongue shall swear allegiance And then from Philippians, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We will all bow to him, but for many this will not be a cause of celebration. (laughs) All tribes will wail on account of him, even so, amen. In C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, there's a scene where Aslan the, Aslan the Lion, I know many of you will be familiar with this, so Aslan the Lion, the Christ figure in um, the book The Last Battle, he brings the, the, the age to an end and ushers in the judgment. Um, I've paraphrased here a little bit. Um, but all the creatures filed past Aslan. Some looked on the face of Aslan and loved him, and they went through the door leading to Aslan's country and into the light. Others looked straight in his face. I don't think they had any choice about that. The expressions of their faces changed, changed terribly. It was fear and hatred. And those went past the door and disappeared into the blackness. For some, Jesus' coming will be a time of rejoicing. But for many, it will be a terrible day. We will all bow before him. Some will fall to our knees in adoration and praise. But many will fall in their hatred and their fear. Revelation six. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks Fall on us and hide us from the face hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? They would rather the mountains fall on them than face the king. Whoops and this verse ends with even so amen so for all the anguish this causes the people of the earth even so and amen again may it be so verse 8 i am the alpha and the amiga says the lord god who is and who was and who is to come Alpha and Omega, as many of you will know, is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Here, God identifies himself as the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Um, Just as an aside, um, from a bit further on in chapter 1, when I saw him and fell at his feet as though dead, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, "Fear not; I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the death, of, I have the keys of death and Hades. The first and last. This is Jesus here. And if we reflect back to um, um, verse eight, um, this identifies him as God." um about 15 or 20 years ago just again as a quick as quick aside about 15 or 20 years ago we had some jehovah's witnesses come to the door and i invited them in wisely or not but over two or three um, meetings we went through a whole bunch of bible texts um, and every passage i brought up trying to argue the divinity of jesus they always seemed to have some sort of answer for it but when i brought up these passages they couldn't answer and they were actually going to Bring back their elder or whatever they have, and um, discuss it with me further. And we never saw him again. Um, yeah, I, I think we were blacklisted. Um, but it but it suggests to me they couldn't answer. That was one text they just could not answer. That this 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 argument here shows the divinity of Jesus. But back to verse eight. So God claims this title again, and as he does so, again at the end of at the at, yeah, at the end of end. Sorry. At the end of Revelation, he does it again. He reigns over the world from the beginning to the end and everything in between. There was nor ever will be a time when he does not rule supreme. He is the Almighty. What he says will happen. His plans and purposes are always fulfilled and no one or nothing can thwart his designs. Scott Morrison was on this at least very right. God's kingdom will come. It's in his hands. We trust in him, not in governments, not in United Nations, not even in ourselves, thank goodness. And while we await the consummation of the kingdom of God, broken, fallen, sinful people will continue to do what they do. And while they will argue they're ushering in a, some sort of utopia, as we look, we see things just getting worse. We see our country, our culture and the world basically falling apart. We do live in troubling times, but every age has been troubling. In every age, the true followers of Jesus found themselves butting up against the rulers and the culture. They hate the idea that we answer to someone bigger than them and that they also are answerable to someone bigger than them. And that's what this passage seeks to do. It seeks to encourage us. This passage reminds us of who our Lord and God is, that he is indeed the ruler of kings. He is the Lord of history and we can rest in his goodness and strength. It also reminds us of what Christ has done for us and that even though we can expect to be persecuted just as our Lord was, there is coming a day when those persecutors will kneel and wail before Jesus. <clears throat> but to us, to us who are loved and freed by his blood, to us who are a royal priesthood and his kingdom, we are granted grace and peace and despite what we see going around us we know that things will end well and that God is for us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father we do thank you that you are indeed um, king of king and lord of lords and that all history falls into your plans and that ultimately everything works out um, as you were predestined and as your will um, as your will wills. And so, Lord, help us to trust in that every day. Help us to never fear, um, but to rest safely in your hands. Amen.